1: This is the Church Politics podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. I'm Michael Ware. Justin, how are you this week?
0: I'm good, brother. Really good, man. I was just in your area in the D.C. area for the Just Gospel Conference, which went really well. Uh, shout out to Debidi, all those folks that put that together uh, from the Front Porch Group. Man, they they did an excellent job. Had some really good, uh, some really good, some good talks and sermons. Man, Doctor Moore, uh, Russell Moore, went off, and it was. It was fun, man. Good to see everybody. My boy, Dr. Esau Macaulay also did his thing. So It was great.
1: Yeah, you gave a pretty good talk, too. I I, uh, I was able to watch some of the conference. I was traveling in, in a bit in and out, but was able to watch the live stream. And uh, uh, yeah, I would urge folks to check out uh, Justin's talk as well as, as some of the others he mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Moore, Esau, Macaulay, friend of the podcast. Uh, but but yeah, it was a great, great conference. They really know how to put one together.
0: Yeah, I think so, man. So if y'all want to check that out, I guarantee you won't regret it. Uh, you can probably just, I know it's all on YouTube. So the Just Gospel Conference 2020, uh, you'll get to see all those. Uh, I spoke on the second day, but you'll get to see all those speeches. I know uh, there were great speakers, Jenny Yang and others were there. So regardless of who you catch, man, it, you'll enjoy it.
1: Justin, you know, we we got past um, a super Tuesday. Uh, We now know, you know, basically every week we have uh, different states, uh, basically a handful of states voting uh, every week now for a while. And so that's moving forward. But what, and we'll talk about 2020 a bit later in the podcast, but thought we'd open up talking about the coronavirus and president trump's response to it i mean just just uh, this is now a pandemic a uh, globally stocks have went down including wall street Italy is in the middle of what uh, New York Times reports is one one of the largest ever attempts to restrict the movement of people in a Western democracy, locking down the Lombardy region and some more of the north of Italy, affecting about 16 million people. Saudi Arabia closing off air and sea travel to nine countries. And then in the United States, uh, the Trump administration... Uh, is sending some mixed messages, and a lot of that is due to the the, the president, who you know, Justin. In some ways, and and I want to be, you know, I, I want to try and be judicious here, but in some ways, you know, this is the kind of crisis that that the folks were worried about with this president, who is responding in a very political way who is not on message with the experts in his administration, not on message with the CDC uh, doesn't seem to be willing to back up even the messages of, of his own cabinet and people that he's uh, he's appointed. Uh, They sent, I I think some administration officials uh, to do some of the Sunday morning shows that were uh, that, from some of the segments I saw, were not reassuring, but instead gave a sense of uh, uh, secrecy and and not really uh, being able to convey confidence that the government is is managing this well. Uh, I think there's been a lot of overblown sort of predictions about kind of what what's going to happen. The fact is, no one no one really really knows. Uh, we could look around the world and and get a sense of the fact that uh, certainly this could be a major, uh, major crisis affecting not just the financial markets, but affecting the daily lives of the American people, particularly in certain regions of the country. Uh, and it, it, it would be it would be nice to have have a, a, a presidential leadership that was reassuring in this moment. I, I'm not sure we're getting it. Uh, what do you think, Justin?
0: Michael, to be honest, man, this is something that's hit close to home. Uh, my family uh, had a cruise planned for next week. And honestly, man, up until the travel advisory that came out Sunday from the State Department, it was hard to tell how much the outbreak should alter our plans. You had some people, especially with the way our news is distributed now. You had some people who were saying that this was overblown. You had others saying that we should be running for our lives. Uh, and I think you hit it on the head. I don't think anyone knows how bad this will get, but maybe within the last 12 hours, I think the government has provided a little more clarity or some guidelines uh, and kind of taking that it's better to be safe than sorry position. That's uh, right. Trump's initial response came under a lot of scrutiny. Um, and, I, and I think it should have, because this is no time for a kind of shoot from the hip or freestyling pressers that he usually does. Uh, he's not prepared for these conversations. And so he's giving answers that just are inaccurate. I know that at one point he said that the virus had reached its peak. Another time he said anyone that wanted a test could get it. Those statements were corrected by other folks in the administration and it's just unfortunate that someone would take um, an issue that could be this serious and still be so unprepared uh, to really handle it. Uh, now, he's got a lot of criticism, especially from governors, because governors on the are on the front lines of trying to protect their states and, and people in general from this virus uh, and not just from uh, Democrats, also from Republicans. Mayor, uh, Maryland's Republican governor criticized Trump's initial response, although he said that he was. Um happy to see that Pence was the person that was going to lead the effort to keep Americans safe. Bernie Sanders disagreed with that. He thought Pence shouldn't be running it. Also, New York Governor uh, Cuomo uh, criticized the CDC. Apparently they were delaying coronavirus tests in private laboratories, so they weren't allowing private laboratories to, to do that. He thinks that would move the process along for states if they allowed states and private laboratories to, to take some of that work as well. Uh, But one thing that was very interesting, Michael, was that there's a political article uh, saying that some of the folks on Trump's team uh, see this coronavirus issue as an opportunity to do some other things as far as policy goes to get some other policy wins. Number one, they think it might be an opportunity to increase border restrictions. Uh, Also, uh, it might allow give them the chance to isolate China even more by reducing reliance on Chinese manufacturing. And lastly, uh, to actually deliver broader tax cuts. Uh, it's being reported that Newt Gingrich called for offering a one time tax credit for companies that move manufacturing back to the US from China. Uh, so that is interesting. Uh, it, it, you know, we're discussing the politics of coronavirus, but you would think that the goal would be for it not to be so political because it's such an important issue that we should be coming together and just making decisions based on the best interests of the people. Uh, but apparently that's not the world we live in. The political article also cites a quote from Rahm, from Rahm Emanuel, uh, a really an infamous quote where he said, you never want to let a serious crisis go to waste. Now, if Trump is to use this crisis to his advantage, he wouldn't be the first president to do so. So before we go in too fast to criticize him, as if he's the only one, he he probably isn't. Uh, the article mentions that uh, President George W. Bush push for regime change in Iraq after 9 11. That was something that he had wanted to do even before 9 11 happened. Uh, it also points to uh, President Barack Obama and how he pushed for em- environmental measures uh, and to reduce emissions, along with pushing some infrastructure programs after the 2008 economic collapse. There's a Princeton professor who says that neither of those were directly li- related to the Wall Street uh, issues. And then a little further back, you had President Woodrow Wilson, Wilson, who used the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak to exert control over the economy, including food and fuel distributions and some stuff that was going uh, going on with the railroads. So I guess America does have a history of using kind of uh, crises to push policy I just certainly hope that it doesn't uh, frustrate the situation and make it harder uh, for us to to solve this or make things after we do solve it, make kind of some of our relationships a little tougher. Uh, So we'll see what happens. But the president, you almost want him to back up, say, hey, hand it to Pence, who seems to be a little more responsible. And you just go do something else because this is too serious to be running around unprepared and just saying whatever comes off the top of your head.
1: Yeah, it's uh You know, I I think I I just want to I do think there's a lot of like fake science and sort of uh, a lot of sort of screenplay writing going on on social media. I I, I do want to be clear. uh, So I think some of that's some of the stuff I've seen on social media and stuff is overblown people trying to get clicks. I want to urge people. What the CDC is saying is not overblown. <laughs> what uh, what uh, reputable news sources uh, are are reporting, instructing uh, instructing folks uh, with best practices and guidance for what they should do. That's not overblown. So we want folks to make sure uh, taking care of yourselves uh, as Christians, taking care of the people around you. R- remember, you have a responsibility not just for yourself but for those. Mm-hmm uh, uh in, in your in your community that you're not just sort of operating on an island and, and something like this is uh will make that really really clear to you so you know i would just urge folks to to stay safe uh, uh take care of yourselves uh, uh stay hygienic make sure you're washing your hands make sure that you're um uh, just being responsible uh and, and as citizens we need to take on some of the burden for uh, for for trying to to mitigate some of the consequences of uh, what's what's happening here, and then Justin, I just say, you know, with uh, I, I agree with you that it was a, p- a positive thing that Vice President Pence was was brought on uh, was brought on board. I think some folks would have criticized whoever Trump brought on to to manage this. Mike Pence was a governor he has executive functioning people in in the Trump administration respect him uh, he knows them so i I, th- I think it was it was good to bring in a point person just like vice president Biden he's not a general it, he didn't know the exact way to get troops out of Iraq for instance but but you want to you want you want an executive there uh, ron Klain was uh was the white house's point person for ebola well ron Klein isn't a doctor but he's he's someone who knows how government works he's been in government for a long time and so you know folks should just just should just be be a little careful about um about just buying into the the constant sort of outrage outrage machine if if pence uh you know make makes a concrete decision uh here that proves to be you know negative or costly, then let's criticize that. But but Pence hasn't done anything yet. <laughs> like like we're we're, we're you're, you're criticizing something that we just don't know um, don't know what's going on. I, I do think the the ultimate responsibility is in terms of federal government is going to lie on the CDC NIH uh on 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 the experts who are uh running our our sort of health and center for disease control and that kind of thing. Yeah,
0: I couldn't agree more. Um I think there's obviously an effort on the left to to make Pence the same as Trump. And we may disagree with with the way that uh uh Pence has put up with Trump and a whole bunch of other stuff in his policies, which I certainly have a lot of disagreements there, but they're not the same person. Uh, I I can't say that he approaches things in the same kind of haphazard way as Trump does. And so I think it's good. Again, uh, as you said, it's good for the country that he's kind of in front of this.
1: Yeah. Uh, Are are you going to be able to uh, to re rebook your cruise?
0: We'll see, man. Uh, You know, with with our schedules, it can it can be tough. But we're having like a group we're going with a group of friends. So we're having a group uh, meeting tonight and we'll just kind of play it by ear.
1: Well, uh, we're going to take a break when we get back uh we're going to talk a little bit about some of the uh some of the developments uh in and storylines sort of uh with with 2020 this is the church politics podcast <music>
0: Michael, I have to admit, uh, I thought the complaints about the behavior of Bernie supporters was really overblown up until last week. Uh, It is very clear that Bernie supporters did not handle Super Tuesday too well. Uh, Some of them have spent, it seems like, the last week blaming the campaign's failures on the supposed stupidity or low information uh, voters that are Biden voters and calling them all kinds of names, sellouts, and everything else uh, in their disappointment. The hubris coming and vitriol coming from that direction, I think, has got to be a little much. You know, A lot of Bernie supporters, and not everybody, I know some Bernie supporters that are very uh, civil and that handle things the right way, so we're not indicting everyone. But some of them, uh, much like Trump, clearly just view moderation with contempt. I I don't know any other way to explain it. Uh, There are some progressives who seem to think that if you don't agree with their specific policy prescription, then you don't care about poor people. You don't care about struggling Americans generally. And I think that's very dangerous. I tweeted about this um, uh, yesterday. I think that's a very dangerous way to look at things and kind of inaccurate because someone can agree with you in principle and think that there's a better way to accomplish the same objective. Someone can disagree with your policy and still care about the same people that you care about. Right. You almost get this feeling that a lot of Bernie supporters and and really some of the you know, a lot of folks that are speaking on his behalf, some of the surrogates are basically saying that if you don't want to take the most extreme measures, then you don't really care. But the fact of the matter is, and I think history shows us, the most extreme measure is not always the best or only compassionate way forward. Uh, being moderate can be a cop out, right? Being moderate, we've seen in history, and, and a lot of people have pointed to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, when you know when he was writing and he had criticism of white moderates. Uh, I think he points out very well in that that being moderate can become a cop out if you're using it as a reason to delay acting on clear injustice. But I'm not sure that we can say that being that moderation in general is a always a half-hearted position or it's always kind of indecisive or means that you don't want to go all the way there, that you're willing to compromise on, on serious justice issues. I'm, I don't think that's what moderation means. And one place to kind of get a good definition of moderation is Peter Weiner. I think he has a really good definition of, of moderation, which a lot of people are fighting against. And here's what he says. He said, look, moderation isn't this kind of weak-hearted compromise all the time. He says moderation is an ancient virtue. That involves prudence, right? Being wise and humility. Uh, It does not always mean truth is found in the middle of two extremes, nor that bold and at times radical steps are not necessary to advance moral ends. That's so important. When I say I'm a moderate, that does not mean I look to see where both extremes are and I land right in the middle right now. Sometimes a lot of times you're going to land in the middle because when they when there's such a big gap between the extremes, the only thing sensible is somewhere in the middle, but not directly in the middle or just looking to somehow always be in the center of everything. That's not what it means. He goes on to say this moderation accepts the complexities of life uh, and and it distrust utopian visions of simple solutions. Such a good such a good quote right there. The way to think about moderation, he says, is as a disposition, not as an ideology. Uh, it's antithesis is, is not conviction, but intemperance. Right. So intemperance would be the opposite of moderation, not conviction. Right. So it's not saying moderates are somebody who who aren't passionate about any issue. They just don't want to be intemperate. They just don't want to assume that there's an easy answer to all these complex uh, issues. Uh, and so, Michael, I share the same. Cons- I share the same many of the same concerns that you see coming from Democrat socialists about the f- innate flaws in kind of the American consumer capitalism, capitalist system uh, and how it's really left a lot of people behind, how it's let Wall Street get away with murder while poor and working class people continue to suffer. I don't necessarily disagree with them on that. That is a debate worth having and it's a fight worth taking on. But you have to make the case. Right. You don't just get to summarily dismiss people who don't agree with the way that you want to go about it. There can be multiple ways to, to fixing that issue. Um, and and the idea that any form of capital uh, of socialism, excuse me, is the obvious alternative and a clear way to f- just fix everything. I think it's just far fetched. Uh, socialism doesn't necessarily have a pristine historical record. And people who question socialism can make a strong historical and present day case. That doesn't mean that you're wrong. It just means there is a case to be made against it. And the answer might not be so obviously socialism. And so I'll end here, Michael. Here are my two big issues with any kind of socialism. Right. So I'm not I'm not a socialist, but I want to be clear why not. And here are two of the biggest reasons. Number one, let's not be utopian. The state isn't just some perfect benevolent being. Right the state or the government, is people. People run the government. People who are imperfect, people who have agendas, and people who are seeking power. People in government don't stop being power-hungry and self-interested just because it's a socialist system, right? That power also, and Christians need to think about this, the power that is given to the government when it comes to socialism, in many cases, if you look at historically, has gone into overreach and in some cases it's encroached on the church there's a history of that now you you can say that doesn't happen in every case and that may be true but it's something you have to look at so for me I tend to be suspicious of putting too much power in the state or in p- private industry I personally think that they should kind of check each other and that neither of them we shouldn't we shouldn't allow either of them to get too big here's my last point I'm far from being a libertarian I think that uh, the government can and at times should play in a significant role in the economy um, and in other systems that you know that we deal with on a daily daily basis. However, I've worked in government. I worked in government for almost a decade, and I know that government can be cumbersome, it can be slow, and it can be ineffective in certain places. Private industry, if smartly regulated and mediating institutions like churches, nonprofits, and so on are much more innovative, competent, and efficient than government in a lot of different areas. Not all areas. There's some areas that the government, I think, needs to handle things. But in others, the innovation, the competence, and the efficiency just isn't there sometimes because you don't see the same incentives, right? Uh, There are certain services that I just don't trust the government to provide efficiently, uh, the incentives just again just aren't there. Now that doesn't mean that I don't think healthcare and education should be more accessible. It just means I might think that there's a better way to go about it. Michael, what are your thoughts on just this whole back and forth, and just how some progressives and Bernie
1: supporters have handled uh, the more moderate voices kind of standing up? There are a number of ways to take this. I mean, I think you hit on the the substantive and sort of the the philosophical. Uh, well, I mean, I, I just I just add to that, you know, uh, uh, the UK as the NHS uh, nationalized healthcare system, y- you tune into their their political debates, tune into their elections and ask yourself whether uh, whether the NHS has ended health care policy debates or needs in in uh, there and the, the answer, by the way, is no. The NHS continues to be one of the primary political issues uh, in the UK. Uh, instead of debates about whether it should be created, uh, now the debates are whether it's being funded enough. So they got, they got a nationalized healthcare system, but then it's a matter of, well well, how, how much is it funded? Uh, are there enough doctors to go around? And so you know uh you you go to any sort of uh these these solutions are not sort of the the end all be alls that sometimes they're presented as uh uh they are not sort of like you said just sort of utopian policies that uh will will sort of end debates about education or ch- child care or Or health, Uh, so so that would be the first thing I'd say, and and then you know to move to the the political. I mean, I think it's just a clear example of why uh, why Bernie Sanders has fallen behind in this in this race. He's running for the nomination of the Democratic Party, and yet many of his supporters and at times the candidate himself makes a case that requires Democratic voters to reject. Uh, the presidencies of past Democratic presidents and in some ways to sort of equate uh, all of the presidents together. I mean, you talk to some Bernie supporters and Bernie has had some moments where, you know, he suggest, he's sort of not been able to state clearly, you know, the, the difference between Reagan, Bush, Clinton and Obama. Well, it's going to be really hard for a Democratic Party electorate to go along with that kind of political analysis that sort of, it doesn't matter who it's been, everyone's been a corporate shill, there's no sort of gradation, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, quick sort of turn from the ACA, uh, the Affordable Care Act that Bernie's voted for to now saying we need to basically scrap that and do something new after all these promises that the ACA was, uh, sort of, uh, was, was such a, such a massive overhaul. I, I just think it hasn't, hasn't helped him. And, and over these next few weeks, we're going to see if a Bernie can build a coalition rebuild a coalition and whether he's able to, um, uh, whether he's able to win a democratic primary or if, um, or if his main impact, is to just put some pressure on those who will win. <laughs> uh, that's what he did uh, in 2016, where you saw Hillary Clinton kind of have to uh, decide to pick up some of, uh, and I think absorb some of Bernie's critiques uh, in a way that didn't help her in the general. And And I think, you know, the same, uh, we'll, we'll see if the same, uh, happens uh, happens to biden i think a major determinant of that is just how, how long this thing goes on but uh, we we need to we need to be real careful making sure that we're not suggesting that just because folks have a different political point of view a different policy point of view that they don't care about what you care about or that they don't their their motivations are somehow uh, directly counter to to yours particularly when Bernie doesn't exactly have a great record of, of, of getting things done. Uh, even in his home state of Vermont, which, you know, I'll close with this, you know, v- Vermont tried an experiment with sort of more concentrated government control uh, of, of health care. They, they tried to do a single payer in Vermont, and the, the governor who actually advanced that uh, has said it was a big mistake and endorsed Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, Bernie was heav- heavily involved with that. Obviously, since he was in the U.S. Senate, he didn't, you know, write the bill, but he was, he was supportive of the effort. It, it's very close to what, and even in Vermont, a small state that doesn't, you know, doesn't have to cover too many people, couldn't find a way to make it work, even though. It was accompanied with all of these promises about how it was going to be such a break from the American way of doing healthcare. And, you know, uh, uh, this isn't a direct quote, but, you know, a revolution in healthcare in Vermont. Well, the revolution didn't go too well. And, and they since scrapped it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I would say this, you know, any type of socialism sounds mm-hmm. good when the person you want to be in office is in office because you're giving them more power. You know, you're kind of giving them more power to do what yeah, they need yeah, to yeah. do with the state. What about when the person you don't want to be in office is there? Right. And, and there's not as many other counters when the person you don't want to be there may have more power. You know, it may give the state more power than you would like it to have when it's not the person that you want to be in office. Those are things we have to think about before we just tear everything down and say, hey, we're in need of a of a, rev- of a revolution. Also look at the how people live in most socialist countries and is the standard of living. It may be more equal. You could say is it a higher standard of living. And in a lot of cases, it's not. Uh, And so I know there's a lot of uh, talk that goes into that. But the idea that socialism is a cure all and it should be a no brainer for people. I think we need to do a little more research than that. But uh, the debate continues, Mike.
1: Yeah. Well, for, for the last topic we want to discuss, we've seen just in this flood of endorsements come in and not just for Biden, although, you know, we saw in between South Carolina and Super Tuesday, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke endorsed Biden uh, this morning. We're recording this on Monday morning. This morning, Cory Booker announced his support for uh, for Joe Biden. Reverend Jesse Jackson endorsed uh, 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 Bernie Sanders over the weekend. I think one question that's sort of a perennial one is, you know, do endorsements matter uh, and and how do they matter? Um I believe they can. They don't they don't always m- matter in a ground sh- shifting sort of way. but uh, in general, especially when we're talking about endorsements from elected elected leaders, uh, elected leaders are, are elected. They have a certain level of power and they have a certain uh, a level of, of notoriety. People have voted them into office that indicates some level of, of support and interest in what they have to say. Uh, and so I, I, do think there's, there's an impact in endorsement in, in endorsements. I think a couple things can factor whether an endorsement is, is truly meaningful and, and, and actually uh, changes the direction of uh, the directions of things. Uh, the first is just in, uh, geographical sort of significance. So I'll give you an example, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren is the senator from Massachusetts, and yet uh, she not only had a former governor of her state decide to jump into the race himself, which doesn't suggest a vote of vote of confidence, but Senator John Kerry, uh, who used to represent the state, uh, uh, typically at the very least, you'll have uh, folks from the home state of someone running decide to sit out. Uh, an endorsement, and and at least not endorse one of their uh, one of a candidate's uh, uh, opponents. Um, uh, but we saw John Kerry endorse Joe Biden. Now, of course they they had a they had a relationship. They worked in the Obama administration together. Uh, but I don't think that was an insignificant factor in. Joe Biden actually uh, beating uh, Senator Warren in her, in her home state uh, on Super Tuesday. So uh, geographic sort of, there can be a geographic uh, uh, placement that can be influential. And that does, I won't give more examples on that, but it doesn't just refer to sort of home states. It can also be, um, you know, regional, you know, uh, a Sherrod Brown endorsement, forever, uh, for instance, could have huge significance in the Rust Belt. I think we saw James, Cly- uh, James Clyburn's endorsement uh, have an influence not just in South Carolina, but even outside of South Carolina. Um, and, and then, Justin, the, the second factor I, I'd raise is uh, endorsements can sort of validate a certain aspect of a candidate that's important, or they can be timed in a way that validates a moment. And so, so this is the way I think about these Super Tuesday endorsements. If uh, if Buttigieg would have endorsed a month later, or if he would have dropped out endorsed a month earlier, it may not have had the same impact, or Klobuchar, it may not have had the same impact as endorsing in the wake of a South Carolina victory at a moment that symbolized consolidation around, around Biden. So Right, the consolidation wasn't j- around Biden. wasn't just about uh, some of his former competitors endorsing him. It was happening uh, at the at the local and state level. There was sort of machinery that was moving, but those those big name endorsements helped solidify. Hey, this is what's happening. Uh, if you ascribe to sort of this lane of the Democratic Party, uh, Joe Biden is the direction you should be going, and so endorsements can have an impact there. But before I toss it to you just now, over the weekend, Kamala Harris also jumped in and, and endorsed uh, Joe Biden on Monday night. She, she will be joining Joe Biden for a rally in, in Detroit, I believe. But um, but yeah, so, so what, what do you think? And how, how have you seen endorsements uh, play out? Do you think that they, they can be meaningful?
0: I think they can be meaningful. I mean, we we can both agree that uh, you'd rather have the endorsement of a a reputable leader or group than to have your opponent have it. Right. (laughs) So so that's that's one thing that's clear. Um, And then you have situations like, you know, Congressman Jim Clyburn, right, where his endorsement, because of how it was timed, had a big you know, had had a pretty big impact on what was going on. Now, there were a lot of things going on to kind of to make that happen. But but I think you're right that, you know, that can happen where it has a a really big uh, impact. Mostly, I don't think that endorsements have the major impact that sometimes we expect. Right. Uh, People work so hard to get endorsements and you get really excited about it. And then it's kind of like, okay, people are like, okay, that's cool. And they kind of move on. What I think it does most of the time, Michael, is endorsements give a campaign a sense of momentum. Right. So if you've won, you have a big Super Tuesday and then you get all these endorsements It's really showing that you have momentum. And I think people sometimes tend to go along with the momentum or at least recognize and say, "Okay, this person is in the lead. This person is the one that's supposed to win. And that goes a long way. And so I I think that's where most of the benefit comes from in a lot of instances, because I've been on some campaigns, man, where we had the endorsement of everybody, uh, especially on like referendums and stuff like that. And. Mm. People just didn't care. <laughs>
1: right? right. So sometimes
0: right. sometimes it means nothing. Usually it means something uh, because of momentum. And then and in, in if, if things align the right way and it's the right person, the right group, it can mean a lot. So it, it varies.
1: Well, you know, I think where um, uh, what's going to be interesting to see is, I mean, clearly endorsements either because they created the momentum or because they validated Uh, the momentum that Biden would have naturally had coming out of South Carolina. Anyways, I mean, I think part of what we're saying is it's all it almost doesn't matter. <laughs> like like, like the, the the win creates the endorsements. The endorsements help create the win. Like it's all part of a all part of an ecosystem. I think one interesting thing is just going to be to see what's the staying power. What's the life of the meaning of these endorsements? I think we'll have an early sign of that uh, on Tuesday, and seeing uh, I think we'll you know folks will be looking for signs that either. You know, Biden is building strength, or that Bernie is starting to regain his footing in a way that I, I don't think will show up on uh, in in this Tuesday, March 10th election, but potentially in in the future. And Bernie uh, made the Bernie made the charge on the Sunday
0: shows that the establishment basically forced people to endorse Biden. Uh, yeah, and so it's kind of like going with he that did. conspiracy, and I, and I, and honestly, I think those really early endorsements, so Klobuchar and and uh, Buttigieg, I would imagine some pressure, or at least the you know the carrot and the stick was kind of applied, right? Either there's some benefits to doing it, but I, I would almost guarantee that somebody was kind of pushing that a little bit uh, to say it was forced. I I don't know about all that, but I will say this: Michigan's going to be crucial for for uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. If Bernie can't win Michigan, or he does really poorly in Michigan, I think it's almost time for for him to pack it up. But we'll have to see.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I, I think that's the that's the end of what we what we want to discuss today. Any any closing words, Justin?
0: Not really, man. Just uh, keep supporting. Uh, You know, you are a part of the end campaign. So if you want to create a chapter in your area or just support us, you know, we don't we don't get paid to do this show. Uh, We just put this information out there. But we would love your support and kind of making this happen and getting you more uh, content. So we do need you to get involved. The uh, the end campaign isn't something outside of you. If you support us, then the end campaign is you. And I'll just leave with our our outro. Uh, There is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ and camp. Until next time. That's it. Have a good one.